Open with me, please, to First Thessalonians. The early Christians had what we would call today an imminent eschatology. They believed that Jesus was likely to come during their lifetime. Now, they allowed for the fact he might not come during their lifetime, but they believed he would likely come during their lifetime. This is most evident in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, and Revelation. Part of the reason we have the message to the seven churches in Revelation, of course, is because John was the last surviving of the original apostles. During the persecution by the emperor, uh, not Diocletian, uh, Domitian. Domitian, thank you. And the Christians were wondering, well, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? None of the original apostles, in fact, the generation who saw him alive after he rose from the dead, witnesses to his life, very few of them are with us. So they needed to be reassured of their eternal destiny. Thus it was in the early church. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind when we look at First or Second Thessalonians. They had an imminent eschatology. Second thing we have to realize is that they were susceptible to a lot of confusion surrounding it. Wrong ideas of when the return of Jesus would be, events like the resurrection, the rapture, etc. A lot of confusion surrounding when it would be. Now let's begin looking at chapter 1 of First Thessalonians. Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness in the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Notice in verse 1 and in verse 3, you have both the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Something that would come in the early church was known as Sabellianism. Sabellianism. Today we call them United Pentecostals. The Father is Jesus, Jesus is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus, and they don't make the distinction. These are the people who are very big on being baptized in the name of Jesus only. When they begin pushing that thing of baptism in the name of Jesus only, you can be quite certain that the real issue is not baptism. The real issue is the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, this is Sabellianism. And incipient forms of this began to arise perhaps at a very early age. Certainly the Holy Spirit anticipated it. Thus he inspires the apostles to write as he did. I actually had one of these latter-day Sabellians. I think it was in New Zealand. And when I asked him, why is it that when Peter was, when Stephen was being martyred, he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, what this guy actually believed, his reasoning, well, if somebody was hitting you in the head with rocks, you'd be seeing doublers too. <laughs> That's how far capable of going. Let's continue. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Echia. Now understand this. The gospel didn't come in word only, but in dunamis, in power. 
Now, today, when people talk about that, they usually mean signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Miracles. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 4. God also bearing witness with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The Bible generally does not associate gifts of the Spirit with this kind of dunamis, power. These signs follow, these signs have a place, but the kind of power that Paul talks about in his preaching of the gospel with full conviction was something quite different than what's being bantered about today. What was it? It was the power to persevere in the faith during much tribulation, in verse 6. The real power of someone's spirituality will never be seen in demonstrations of supernatural power, signs, wonders, and gifts, as much as I personally believe in those things. That's not the real acid test of spiritual power. The real acid test of one's spiritual power is the capacity to persevere in trials, to withstand temptation, and to stand in much tribulation. That's the real power. When people run around talking about power today, power, they think it means how many people can you blow on or knock them down with something like this. That is not what the New Testament means by power. The New Testament means something very, very different. But let's push on. For the word of the Lord has not sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Asia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Yeshua, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice right from the beginning, Paul talks about these people having received the word of God in much tribulation. When Paul was saved, he was saved in much tribulation. Right from the beginning, he told them about the tribulation. Today, it's not like that. Jesus spoke directly about telling people to count the cost. Don't begin building unless you know what it is going to cost you. But in the era of cheap grace, of every eye closed, every head bowed, just put your hand up and accept Jesus into your heart. God loves you and wants to bless you. Cheap grace, you have a big problem. When tribulation does come, those people will not stand. In fact, today, what's being so often, in fact, most commonly, most visibly on the idiot box and television, being pushed as the gospel is, you don't have to suffer, you're a king's kid, this kind of thing. And so when tribulation, of course, comes, these are the first people to fall away. As I've often pointed out, Jesus said many will fall away and betray one another. Well, you can be sure who that's going to be. If you want to know what kind of Christians are going to fall away and betray you and your families tomorrow, it's the ones listening to Copenhagen, etc. today. They're the ones going to fall away. Right from the beginning, Paul talks about tribulation. Now, the focus is this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Don't worry about tribulation, this life is transient. Notice you have a Greek word, thalipsis, but there is another Greek word for wrath. He talks about having received the word in much tribulation in verse 6. 
But in verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Christians are promised they will be delivered from the wrath, not from the tribulation. The New Testament, to the best of my understanding, does not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. It teaches a pre-wrath rapture. What is the difference? Now, I believe this 20 years ago nearly. The rapture, to my understanding, comes between the sixth and seventh seal in the book of Revelation. What is the difference between pre-wrath and pre-trib? Faithful Christians will never experience the wrath of God. Never. But they will certainly experience the wrath of Satan, the tribulation of this world. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. You can't come out of something you didn't go into. Paul picks this up in 2 Thessalonians, very briefly, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And I only point this out in passing. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The word for gathering together to him here is episunagage. We get the word synagogue, gathering around. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The first thing we see is it will not come unless the apostasy, the apostasia comes first, the great falling away. One of the things the devil has always used and will very much use in the last days to deceive the church is this idea that once saved, always saved is unconditional. We are eternally secure in Christ, but free will was restored at the cross. Unsaved people have no choice. They must sin. The most they can choose is how, when, or where, but not if. They have no choice. They're in bondage. But when someone is born again, the free will, the free choice that Adam and Eve had is restored. Calvinism denies this. We have a choice. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand, but we can leave. Now, when you begin to believe that you can... <laughs> You can't fall away. You can live carnally. You can do what you want. It's no coincidence that so many of the mainstream Protestant denominations that have gone theologically liberal are like Reformed ones, or the Reformed ones. Not only, but primarily. They're the ones ordaining the homosexuals and so on. Well, if you think you can't fall away, what's the point? You cannot apostatize the Greek prefix apo, go out of. You cannot go out of something you were never in to begin with. You cannot fall away from something you are not in to begin with. There will be a falling away. I have no doubt whatsoever. The events we see today in the Middle East, looking for a false peace, it is a prelude to what Zechariah chapter 12 predicts would happen. It's a prelude. I live in Britain. I have no doubt whatsoever that what you see with the European economic community becoming a federal Europe, a non-democratic Europe, no doubt that it is a prelude to the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Neither do I have any doubt, however, that what you see happening today with the ecumenical movement, with things like Pensacola and all this nonsense, these things are a prelude to the apostasia, to the falling away. They are a prelude. Now notice, the rapture can't happen until this happens. But the man of lawlessness must be revealed. 
I am absolutely convinced that the rapture cannot happen, that Jesus cannot come back, that the dead in Christ cannot raise to the raise, and we will not meet them in the air until faithful Christians know who this guy is. These two beasts. In Revelation 13, let he who has wisdom count the number of the beasts. Now, Christ is our wisdom, the Bible tells us. Christ is our wisdom. It's communicated to us by the Holy Ghost. If the only people with real wisdom are the faithful Christians, and we're not here, who's going to have the wisdom to count the number of the beasts? It makes absolutely no sense. The rapture cannot happen till we know who this guy is. But he is the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness. The Greek word here for lawless. Pay attention, please. The Greek word for law is nomos. Whoops. I'm not very good at this kind of thing. Okay. Without law, lawless, a nomos. A nomos. Okay. A nomos. Now, we're going to go back to 1 Thessalonians in a moment, but very briefly, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 20 and 21. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, meaning the law of Moses in this context, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Christians are under the law, but not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. Amen. When you drive to Quad Cities and you go through uh, Rock Island into Illinois, you have left the legal jurisdiction of the state of Iowa and you have come under the legal jurisdiction of the state of Illinois. Some things in the Highway Code of Illinois and the Highway Code of Iowa will be the same. Other things will be different. Well, it's the same with this Old Covenant and the New. Some things will be in common. For instance, nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament. Some things are the same, some are different. We are not without law. We are under the law of Christ. We have gone on one law under another. Today, when you stick to the Bible and you say that's not scriptural, that's not biblical, people are telling you, particularly our fellow Pentecostals and Charismatics, that's legalism. That's legalism. You're under... <laughs> what they are saying is, we don't have law. They are a nomos. The Antichrist is the man who is a nomos. That mentality... Not sticking to the scripture, thinking experiential theology. You can do what you want, and people who stick to the Bible, you call them legalists. They are being set up for the deception by the man of lawlessness. They are the ones who will apostatize. You understand? The people in Pensacola, Toronto, they're the ones who go into the apostasy. In fact, they're apostatizing already. They're apostates. A nomos. Sticking to the Bible means you're a legalist. No, no. They don't know what legalism means. There's two kinds of legalism in the Bible, and neither one of it is that. The first kind is trying to be saved, justified by the law. That's the first kind of legalism. The second is nomianism. It's where you try to live under two covenants. 
The Seventh-day Adventists would be nominists, you understand? They might say, well, we're saved by Jesus, but we also have to refrain from eating this, that, the other thing. That's the other kind of legalism. Legalism is not what they're saying. They're defining legalism as antinomianism, a nomos. They were without law, and the Antichrist will be a man who was without law. Those are the ones who will apostatize. This is what happens in the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation brings this will bring the wrath of God. You understand? This brings the wrath of God. The faithful Christians are saved from the wrath to come. But that is not to say they will not enter tribulation. Everything in the Bible that prefigures the rapture shows the church entering the tribulation and being saved out of it. Separate subject, I only mention these things insofar as they concern First Thessalonians. But let's look here again in verse 9 of chapter 1. They turn to God from idols. You have to understand there were two kinds of non-Jews in the Greco-Roman world who responded to the gospel. Two kinds. The first kind were God-fearers. God-fearers were monotheistic Gentiles who came to believe in the one true God of the Jews. But they did not wish to undergo circumcision. I don't blame them. They got me when I was a baby, but they wouldn't get me today. I recall at the Brit Milah, Brit Milah, circumcision of my son when he was eight days old, the rabbi trained to do the circumcisions came over, and I had, he's called the Moyel, Moyel, I had to hold my son and say the Hebrew prayers, and he, of course, he took out the ritual knife. Before he began the procedure, he takes some cotton balls, he dips it into wine, and drops the wine, drops into the baby's mouth. So I asked him in Hebrew, what is the wine for? And he said, it's to deaden the pain. And I said, if that kid could see that knife, he'd say, keep the wine, give me some Jack Daniels. <laughs> they might have got me when I was a baby, but they wouldn't get me now. These were the God-fearers. They wanted to believe in the Jewish God, but they didn't want to undergo the ritual of circumcision. Thus, when the gospel came and they could come to believe in the Jewish God and have the promised salvation without circumcision, well, they were thrilled. But this is the other kind of Gentiles. These are ones who were literally saved out of paganism. The God-fearers had already turned from paganism, at least in their thinking. They turned from idolatry and the worship of the Greek gods, Zeus, etc., and Apollo, and so forth, already. At least they intellectually turned from it. These were people saved out of it. You have to understand the pagan background of the people, therefore, that Paul was writing to, to understand some of the things he gets into later in this epistle. Always look at who is the thing being written to, to understand what he's saying. Unless we know what it meant for them, we cannot know properly what it means for us. But let's continue, please. Now we are into chapter 2. For you know yourselves, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. For after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. Compare Paul's preaching to the nonsense you get today from the faith prosperity people. They would say Paul had no faith. And of course, when you point out, wait a minute, what you're saying it doesn't agree with what Paul said, they will say you're into legalism. You are a nomos. Yeah, well, the Antichrist will be the man of a nomos. They're following little Antichrist like Benny Hinn already. What's going to happen when the real guy comes? 
I've repeatedly pointed out, if you cannot see to these con artists on television, these obvious heretics, what will happen when the deceiver comes? If you can't see through these little, little antichrists, what's going to happen when the real thing comes? But let's look. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Verse 3. Error, impurity, or by way of deceit. Those three things. In that order. Error, impurity, deception. One begets the other. The Greek word for impurity is a catharsis. A catharsis. A catharsis means a mixture. A mixture of what is carnal and what is spiritual in this context. It is a mixture. First comes error. An error. Then comes a mixture. Notice what you find today. Oh, there's some good in Toronto. Oh, there's some truth in what Kenneth Copeland teaches. Well, you can't throw the whole thing away. There's some good in it. Well, just because there is some things I don't agree with, When you have a fundamental doctrinal error, it will lead to impurity. Well, some of it's of God, some of it isn't. We've got to keep the meat and spit out the bones. That's what they say. We have to keep the bits that are of God. No, no. The fact that there is a catharsis, the fact that there is a mixture, tells you it is a... Deception. Okay? The very fact that there is mixture tells you it's deception. When those poor people, the Jehovah's Witnesses, come knocking on the door, I would imagine probably about two-thirds of what they say are things that you or I would agree with. It's the other third that's the problem. There is a catharsis, a mixture. Now, you know from my previous visits, Peter uses another word. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That word is para-sogzusin in Second Peter. Secretly introduce destructive heresies is the phrase to translate his best effort to Translate, a very difficult Greek word to translate. Para is next to in Greek, it's a prefix. So, Zeusin. What that means is, they put truth next to error. Once more, there is always real cheese in the rat trap. Of course there's some truth. What is true is camouflage. It is there to masquerade. What is false? It is the camouflage, the trap. Oh, there's some truth in what they say. Oh, there's some good... Of course there is. It's parasoxusin. 
The false teachers of the last days, Peter says, will put truth next to error. But Paul is dealing with it differently. He's talking about the mixture of error causing carnality. Wrong doctrine will lead to wrong conduct every time. Wrong doctrine will inevitably result in wrong conduct. The New Testament contains twice as much exhortation to right doctrine as it does right conduct. The New Testament contains twice as much exhortation to right doctrine as it does right conduct. Why? Why does it talk about having right teaching and right doctrine twice as much as it does right conduct? Because if we do not know what right doctrine is, we will have no basis to understand what right conduct is. If you know right doctrine, what right conduct is, is going to be obvious. If you don't know what right doctrine is, you won't know if something is catharsis or a catharsis. Okay? If you don't know what right doctrine is, you won't know if something is catharsis, pure, or a catharsis, a mixture of what is pure and impure. Impurity, a mixture. That's what impurity means. It means a mixture, doesn't it? Something is impure, it's not purified. David prayed, Lev tohor brali Elohim in Hebrew, created me a clean heart, O God. But the clean is tahor, purified. Remove the bad things. There is a mixture that has to be purified. Error will lead you to impurity, a mixture that will be manifested in conduct that is wrong. That, in turn, brings us into full-blown deception. Full-blown deception. And you see it today. You know, some of the videos you see of these extreme charismatic things, you look at the conduct of the people and some of it is actually lewd, isn't it? It's vulgar. It's vulgar and it's lewd. It's, it's promiscuous. Well, there's a reason for that. The wrong doctrine has brought them into wrong conduct. Oh, some of it's of God. Yeah, it's a catharsis. It's a mixture. We have to keep what's good and throw out the bad. No, 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 no. If you have an omelet, right? Three eggs and two of the eggs are good and one of the eggs is rotten. Would you eat that omelet? Of course you would. The whole thing has to be thrown away, isn't it? It is a catharsis. Let's continue, please. Error will bring a mixture, impurity, that would manifest in wrong conduct, and the bottom line will be, inevitably, deception. But now let's look at what that comes to in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And again, he's probably alluding back to David. Creating me a clean heart, O God. Search me, O Lord, and see if there's anything in me that's not right. But now look. What does this come to? For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives, because you had become very dear to us. 
For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you to his kingdom and glory. Now let's understand what he's saying here. These other people, Paul is comparing the ministry of himself faithful apostles, and his own team. In verse 1, chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He's comparing the ministry of his gospel team to some other gospel teams. His gospel team had no error, no impurity, and no deception. But these other gospel teams he was comparing himself to did have error, impurity, and deception. Why did they have it? What was their motive? What did it come to? Money. A pretext for greed. And their modus operandi was to flatter people. Watch out for preachers who will tell you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. Flattery, the feel-good factor. They would butter people up emotionally and psychologically and then extract money from them. There'd be doctrinal error. There'd be impurity. There'd be deception. But they knew how to flatter. Read Jude's epistle about backsliders in the fellowship. They flattered and they did it to get money. Paul was saying, we're not like those guys. Now, notice, once more, the focus of Thessalonians is very eschatological. It's very much in the last days. When you read the more eschatological epistles, like Peter or Thessalonians, what he's saying for them becomes co-equally true. In fact, that's not well put. All, all scripture is co-equally as much for us as for the day it was written. But the focus is as much for us as it was for them. You understand? They thought it was the last days, which in the general sense it was, but they thought Jesus was coming, possibly in their lifetime, and these were the things that were happening as they were expecting him. Now that's put there by the Holy Spirit for us. Because as we await Jesus to come, these are the same kinds of things that are going to happen before he comes back. The focus becomes the same. You understand? Look at the eschatological epistles very carefully when you study the last days. Look at Peter's focus, his emphasis, and look at Paul's and Thessalonians. When the apostles teach about the last days to those churches, they're really speaking to us. As much, if not more, as to those churches. Okay? The doctrine will always co-equally apply to all of us. But the focus, the emphasis, is for us. This is what was happening as they were waiting Jesus to come. This is the kind of stuff that was going on. Now notice, Paul had all this affection and gentleness for the newly saved people. You have a very nice word, Greek word, makrothumia. He says in, in Timothy, 
correct with great patience and, and, and endurance, great patience, makrotumia. Paul had great patience for newly saved people, but he had no patience for deceivers who would mislead newly saved people. Jesus was the same. He had tremendous kindness for thieves, for harlots, for tax gatherers, for the worst people. But read Matthew 23, for the religious hypocrites, he actually blew his top and told them, how are you not going to go to hell? And so it was. Let's continue. Let's look. Verse 13, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Notice verse 13. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. The fact that he was God did not make him any less man, and the fact that he was man made him no less God. Now, you have to understand this idea of the Greek word hypostasis, one substance. The word became flesh. Okay? He's fully human and fully divine. The word becomes human. The eternal word of God, the logos, the eternal logos becomes human. That's the way the Bible is. The Bible is literature. It is history. It is the word of Matthew. It is the word of Isaiah, it is the word of Paul, but it is at the same time the word of man. What the Bible is, is the word of God in the word of man. The same as Jesus is God in man, so the Bible is the word of God in the word of man. Luke was a Syrophoenician. He's more universalist, he's more concerned with the global salvation of all the nations than Matthew who was writing as a Jew, okay? Paul was writing from one perspective, Peter from another. You see the emphasis, the personalities, the backgrounds of the writers reflected in the text. It's literature. It's history, it's literature, but it's the Word of God in that. It's fully human and fully divine, okay? The problem with higher criticism and liberal theologians is they simply study it as history and literature. They look at it as the word of man, forgetting it's the word of God in the word of man. Professing to become wise, they become foolish. Verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. The history of Christian anti-Semitism is tragic and indefensible. This persecution of the Jews that has so often happened in the name of Christ is a travesty. Around here, a lot of people are Lutherans. One of the reasons I couldn't be a Lutheran is because they sprinkle babies. They never fully broke with the wrong and unbiblical ideas of the Roman Church. They were right about the authority of Scripture against tradition. They were right about the corruption of the papacy. They were right about justification. But they were wrong about a lot of things. Luther never broke entirely. 
But another reason I could never be a Lutheran is I could not be a member of a church named after a man who said peasants should be stabbed in the back during the peasants' revolt, or a man who said every Jew should be hoarded into a corral and forced to confess Christ at the point of the knife. We, we the German nation, are to blame for we do not murder these Jews to prove we are Christians. Martin Luther inspired Adolf Hitler directly. Hitler and Mein Kampf, and he, he would not infrequently fight Luther. Luther's polemic against the Jews. I couldn't be a member of a church named after a man like that. I'm not trying to judge these dear people around here. Some of them, I'm sure, are saved Christians. But I personally could not be in a church named after a man like that. On the other hand, Christian anti-Semitism is only one side of the coin. Before Christians persecuted Jews, Jews persecuted Jewish Christians and tried to prevent Gentiles from believing in the Jewish Messiah. Notice Paul points out the wrath of God has come upon them to the utmost. He's, of course, referring to the curse of the law in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. But again, wrath. Notice the difference between wrath and tribulation. He keeps coming to wrath. The faithful believers don't experience the wrath of God. But those who reject the Lord do. Okay? Let's look at this. Tribulation, yes. Wrath, no. Big difference. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. Ooh. Why didn't you bind him? Why didn't you take dominion and exercise faith, Paul? Isn't that what they say today? What do they know that Paul didn't? It is absolutely true to say that Satan can do nothing that God doesn't allow him to do, that God doesn't allow him to do. Binding and loosing in its colloquial usage today in the church has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do. If you look at Matthew uh, 16 and 17, it has nothing to do with what they're saying today. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You can't arbitrarily go around binding Satan and taking this nonsense. That's not the context of Matthew 16 or Matthew 18. That's not what binding and loosing means in the Bible. We have a tape explaining what it does mean, but it doesn't mean that. Satan hindered, and Satan can hinder us. It's a battle. Now, ultimately, we win because of Christ. And even when Satan does get a victory, God turns it around. And it backfires on him. It's like a gambit in a chess game. You lose a rook to get a queen. If you're a really good chess player, and God is the best. The biggest gambit is the crucifixion of Jesus. If they knew that God would raise him from the dead, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? God, when Satan does get a victory, God turns it around. But that's not to say Satan doesn't get victories. He doesn't get the ultimate victory, but between A and B, he gets plenty of victories. All things work together for the better in Romans 8. All things don't work for the better. All things work together for the better. There's a big difference. 
There was a case here in the American Midwest where some seminarians were studying for a big Greek exam. It was a, the second year of seminary, and they had this big exam in Greek. And they were all studying, studying, studying. If they didn't pass this Greek exam, they would have had to go to summer school and take the course over. And they were studying, 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 and they needed a break. So they decided that they would play basketball for one hour just to stretch their muscles since they were glued to tables in the library so long they were going to play basketball for one hour. And lo and behold, they went out to play basketball and one guy was dribbling quickly and his friend accidentally fouled him. And when he fouled him, he caused him to trip in such a manner as he dislocated his ankle and fractured it. And he felt terrible. His friend was taken to hospital and x-rayed. And he was told, it's more than a fracture. What do you mean? Well, we have to take some more tests. Now, his friend who fouled him when they were playing basketball felt absolutely terrible. He was causing his friend to have to go to summer school and miss this very important Greek exam. His friend would have no summer holiday, which he needed to go to work to help pay his tuition for the following September. And he felt absolutely terrible what he did to his friend, except that they found a subcutaneous carcinoma in his friend's lower leg purely by accident. It was still encapsulated. There was no metastasis. The cancer had not spread. But had that accident not happened, by happenstance, they wouldn't have found it in time. Do all things work for the better? No. All things work together for the better. To those who love God and are called according to his circumstances. Yeah. There's plenty of setbacks and disappointments along the way sometimes. Those things can happen to us. I'm having one now. That's why I'm taking these antibiotics and analgesics. The devil invented two things. But the real wrath will be for him. This is only tribulation. He gets the wrath. We wanted to come to you more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy, our crown or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Notice Paul's fatherly love for the people who were saved under his ministry. Notice his care for the church saved under his ministry. But he knew when he stood before Jesus, that would be the proof of his pudding. The people we lead to Christ. That's our glory. The wise man delivers souls. Now, not every Christian is an evangelist. We can't all stand up before a large group of people and preach the gospel. But every Christian is a witness. That's right. That's There's right. none of us who cannot share the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. There's none of us who cannot knock on a door or give out a track or engage people in conversation. There's none of us who can't witness. We can't all preach the gospel. We don't all have the gift of evangelism. I accept that. You wouldn't say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching, therefore, I'm not going to read the Bible. That's silly. 
It's a daily bread. God's going to speak to you from the Bible. Now, he may not speak to you in the same depth. He will speak to someone who has the gift of teaching, but he'll speak to you. You wouldn't, wouldn't ignore reading the Scriptures because you don't have the gift of teaching. You wouldn't say, well, I don't have the gift of being a pastor, therefore I'm not going to be the spiritual shepherd of my family. As a husband and a father, I'm not going to be the spiritual shepherd of my wife and children. You wouldn't say that. Now, for a pastor, that's particularly true. If somebody's not a good husband and good father, he can't shepherd a congregation, Paul says. It says in Daniel, the wise man delivers souls. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But let's look. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left at Athens alone. He's speaking collectively here. We couldn't take it anymore. Can saved Christians reach the end of their spiritual and emotional rope? Of course they can. Do not think a Christian cannot get to the point when they cannot take it anymore. It happens to Paul and it can happen to any of us. The idea that we don't do that and you don't have any faith in your weakened faith or your carnal or something like this, that's ridiculous. It is just not biblical. We can reach the end of our spiritual and our psychological, emotional ropes. It can happen to the best of us. And because strong Christians are attacked more than the weak, stronger Christians can be primary targets for it. Well, it's one of the reasons the Bible says pray for leaders. They get attacked more. Strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter, and that's to Jesus. We couldn't take it anymore. So we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Whoa! Destined for affliction? We have multiple accounts of, the, of, of Paul's salvation when he gets knocked off the horse. What is he told from the beginning? Behold, I will show you the things you must suffer. Right from day one. And he's telling these guys the same thing. You know, this kind of cheap American, suburban, Protestant, middle class, consumerist gospel wouldn't work in Nigeria. It wouldn't work in China. wouldn't work in Israel. Those people know they're going to face opposition the minute they decide for Jesus. It only works here. We forget the freedom we have in the Protestant democracies is a historical anomaly. America got its models of religious freedom from Great Britain, where it was bought by the blood of martyrs in the aftermath of the Reformation. And the Puritans and them bought it over here. But that was it. It's not historically normal. Most Christians in most places have suffered. And in the last days, all Christians in all places will in some way or to some degree suffer. And of course, those who are not being upfront about this and are not teaching this, don't love these people. Paul loved them enough to tell them the truth. This is very important in the last days, the way we raise our children. You know what I tell my kids? Plan for the future, but don't plan on it. 
So I tell my kids, plan for the future. Don't plan on it. Let's look. We told you in advance we were going to suffer. We were destined for it. Now he gets personal in verse 5. In verse 1, it's when we couldn't take it anymore. In verse 5, it's when I couldn't take it anymore. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. What a barometer of spiritual character. He's under affliction, going to prison, whatever. And his concern is not for himself, but for those he's led to Christ. That's it. That's it. You know, I'm complaining about a toothache. Suppose I put my toothache before coming to church. How can you compare that to what he's going through? <laughs> amazing. Compare it to what you have today. But now that Timothy has come to us and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see you as just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus, notice it too, our Lord, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notice to Paul, the bottom line is always going to meet Jesus, not this world. He's always looking at the bottom line. He's always looking at how things end. It's always be ready to meet Jesus. Be ready to meet Jesus. Now, I know that, I, I, I'm sure that the rapture will not happen until the faithful Christians can identify the Antichrist. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus can come tonight for us. But I certainly believe he can come tonight for me. <laughs> and with this toothache, I'm beginning to wish he would. <laughs> Lord forbid, I think I have a family I have to stay here. But let's look. Now, let's go back and look at what we just read more closely. The thing that encouraged him in his affliction was to know that the people he led to Christ were standing firm in the faith. But look at this. The word good news in verse 6. That word good news in Greek is this word. Evangelion. Evangelion. It is also the word, the same word, makes no difference. What does it sound like? Gospel. Hebrew, disor, 
Greek evangelion, English gospel, the same word. Notice the real gospel. The real good news is not people being saved. It's people staying saved. People standing in affliction. Jesus never, ever, ever said to make converts. Never. He never said, go out and make converts. He said to make disciples. There is a big difference between a convert and a disciple. The power of the sower and the seed, three of the four fell away. Never said to make converts. Cheap grace get a lot of converts. Oh, thousands have been saved. Where are they ten years later? What is the way, how do you distinguish between a disciple and a convert? A disciple can stand fast through tribulation. A convert will fall away. What's it say with the sower and the seeds when the cares of this world, the thorns come up and choke the thing? Jesus never said to make converts, he's make disciples. That's the real good news. That's the real gospel. Making disciples. And the first step of biblical discipleship is believer's baptism. There's this nonsense thing in England called the Alpha Course with no biblical model of discipleship. There's no baptism in it to begin with. This makes converts at best. At best. The real good news is making disciples, people who will stand under tribulation. That's the good news. That's the real gospel. That's why it uses that word. Now he leads into something further. Finally, and it's a very long finally. Finally then, brethren, we request in verse 1 of chapter 4 and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Notice that? Commandments? Nomos? Law? We're not without law. Lawlessness is the man of sin. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Remember, the focus here is eschatological, and that focus becomes for the last day's church the same. What is the focus? These were people saved out of paganism. These were not God-fearers or Jews who got saved or Gentile God-fearers. These were people who worshipped idols in chapter 1. The Greeks lived in a diabolically sex-charged society where, among other things, bisexuality and homosexuality were socially normative. And where there was this perverted mixture of sexuality and religion with the hieroscamos, the temple prostitutes. We deal with this on the Corinthians tapes. I won't go into it now, only insofar as Thessalonians does. They lived in a sex-charged society. What's society like now? They, Madison Avenue, the advertising industry in America, or the, in England, the Covent Gardens, that's like the one for England, they use 
sex to get people to buy everything from toothpaste to fashion. So that's what, this is what it is. And this was what was happening in Paul's day. It was the Hyros Gamos. It was a money thing. That's what Hollywood is. Uses sex to get people to buy ghostly movies, isn't it? Now, it's the same thing. Only we have a high-tech version of the same mentality. But it's, you had Athena, the goddess of lust, and all this stuff. This was their culture. Goddess of love, they called it. He's getting at these pagan concepts that these people were saved out of. If you look at the Platonic and the Aristotelian, Plato's view and Aristotle's view of marriage, or of relations between men and women, they said this. Ideally, every man, meaning a free man. Now remember, the Greeks, they had 25% of the population were slaves. 25% were totally disenfranchised from anything. So, even the higher ideals of the, of, of, of the Greco-Roman philosophers didn't apply to at least 25% of the population in any measure. They said, Plato and Aristotle's people, followers, believed you should have three women. You should have a mother for your children. You should have a mistress for companionship. And you should have a concubine for erotic pleasure, sexual pleasure. That's what they believed. Ideally, you should have three. The Judeo-Christian idea is the woman you marry is all three. You understand? So Paul talks about sanctification and honor. That woman you sleep with, she's your companion. You wouldn't treat a companion as a mere sex object or temple prostitute. Neither would you the mother of your children. Even unsaved people will generally have some sense of respect for their own mother. Even unsaved people will have that to some measure, usually, not all the time, even that's going, but usually. Not respecting motherhood? Well, <laughs> what Paul is saying is, you can't have this independent of these things. You understand? If you're going to have this, know it's the mother of your children. It's not your concubine. And no, it is your life's companion, not your sex object. That's what he's coming at. And he deals with two things. Sanctification and honor. This, the same woman fulfilling all three functions, is the aspect of honor. Okay? That's the aspect of honor. See, he says honor and sanctification. This is the aspect of honor. Honor. 